Amen. I love this story of Jonah. I, I was thinking when I was preparing this message, what would you do if you had just been vomited up on the beach by a great big fish? Well, I would imagine that the very first thing you do would kind of hose yourself down and clean yourself off a little bit, but then what would you do next? You know, if you lived in today's society, you would probably pitch a reality show to somebody. It'd be on TV, we'd call it the Jonah Show. Or if you'd had a really particularly interesting spiritual experience in the belly of that great fish, maybe you'd build your own beach church. You'd call it the first church of the big fish, or church of the whales, or something like that. Or if you're really an entrepreneur, you'd start a water park, and you'd call it Jonah's Water, you know, Jonah's Wild Water World, featuring a ride on the one and only Regurgitron. It'd be throw you back out into the water, I guess. Now, if you think about it, a, a guy who spent three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish has lots of opportunities if he wants them. A creative type, I'm sure, would use that experience, probably try to make uh, some money off that, get a little fame, a little bit of fortune. So what do you do if you are Jonah? Well, at this point, I guess you just wait for God and see what God wants you to do next. And I want to take you back to the first couple of verses Kevin just read you because he didn't have to wait long. Verses 1 and 2 said, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to it the message I give you. Now, I just want you to note those words a second time. Jonah got a second chance. But I hope you understand that not everybody in the Bible, in fact, nobody today, always gets a second chance. Now, I know that pastors, and I found myself doing this, and Barry, I'm sure you've told people on this mission field too, that God is a God of second chances. But I want to tell you this morning, that's not always true. If you don't believe me, check out the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. Still don't believe me? Ask Lot's wife, who turned around and became a pillar of salt. Ask King Saul if he got a second chance. I think we need to hear those words because it would be easy for us to see the story of Jonah and think to ourselves, it doesn't really make any difference if I do what God asks me in the first place because he'll always give me a second chance. My word of warning to you is do not presume on God's grace. We need to keep biblical truth here in balance. God always welcomes home prodigals. That's true. I told you last week, the light is always on in God's house. That's true. But Jonah did not know when he was in the belly of that great fish, if and when he got out, would it actually happen? I think the really encouraging truth here is that Jonah's disobedience did not cancel out God's call on him. God's message, I guess if I were paraphrasing and put this in the KGV, Kolb's general version, was go to, go to Nineveh, like I told you, and don't mess it up this time. Now, we might say this is good news and bad news. The good news is God has not given up on Jonah. The bad news is he still wants him to go to Nineveh. 
Now, I want to share a few truths with you this morning. You find your outline in your worship folder, but here's the very first thing, important truth, and that's that God does not hold grudges. I mean, God is the God. It says that in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive. We know that God doesn't bear judgment if we confess our sins. He is the God of abundant pardons. And sinners who come to him, God doesn't say, sorry, you, you messed up. God does not hold a grudge against anyone. God is always there willing to demonstrate his grace by renewing his call on your life. Here's the second thing. God doesn't lighten the load. Now, see, this other part is true. I mean, God doesn't hold grudges, but God doesn't lighten the load. It's not as if God said to Jonah, Okay, Jonah, I get it. You really wanted to go to Tarshish, and I guess if that's really where you want to go, I can send you there. But that's not how it works. I mean, God gives Jonah a second chance to do what God had asked him to do in the first place. Here's the third thing. God does not give up. He cares more for the worker than he does about the work. I mean, think about that for a moment. If all God cared about was the big city of Nineveh, he could have sent somebody else. But he wanted Jonah to confront the evil that was in his own heart and to see something of the great love that was inside God's heart. Now, I hope you understand, God does not need Jonah. But Jonah really needed God. And I could say this even more generally. I could say it to everybody, you know, from, from Ted all the way back to Harlan, as far back as I can see. God doesn't need any of us here this morning. But we all really, really need him. Now, if you think about it, there are several reasons why Jonah might have still disobeyed God. God comes back the second time. Think about why he might have still disobeyed. One of them, he he would have been afraid. I mean, there was fear. I mean, Jonah knew all about the bloodthirsty Assyrians. I talked about that way back in the first part, about how they used to skin people alive and, you know, impale them. And and on top of that, it was common knowledge that these people actually bragged about all of the atrocities that they did. I mean, Jonah could have said, hey... (laughs) I'm still not going. I won't last 10 minutes in that town as a Jew. I walk into that town, I'm a dead man. I think there's a second reason he might still not want to go, and that that there's a certain amount of shame. You know, when we greatly fail, you know, when we really mess up, a deep sense of shame time sometimes grips us, and we just are hesitant to step forward. And I think Jonah may have been, I don't know, maybe too embarrassed to go. But there's a third reason that I think is probably way true, and it's that there was this continuing issue of hatred for the Ninevites and everything they stood for. If anybody hated the Ninevites, it was Jonah. And as we're going to see a little bit later, nothing about his time in this great fish's belly changed the depth of hatred he had for the Assyrians. He still would have liked God to send them straight to hell and fry them forever. But what does verse 3 say? It says, Jonah obeyed the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, I'm going to point something out what verse 3 tells you. What it tells you is this is the only time, the only time 
in this whole book where Jonah actually obeys the Lord. Before this episode and after this episode, Jonah has a stinky attitude. He really needs an attitude adjustment. But in verse 3, he obeys God's call. That leads me to, I think, an important principle. You know, we dream about what we'll do when we have more time. You ever do that? Or you dream what you're going to do someday when you got more money. Or you dream what you're going to do someday when you aren't busy. You dream what you're going to do someday when you finally, thank you, Jesus, that we are empty nesters. Or we dream about the day when we get that promotion at work. Or we, we dream about that day when we can go to a different church or when we get a better job. You know, we all got great big plans we dream about. And I want you to understand there's nothing wrong with having dreams and plans. But here's the important point. You'll see it up here on the screen. Small obedience beats big plans every time. Think about that. Small obedience beats big plans every time. We can dream so much about tomorrow that we neglect to do the small little things we're called to do today. So what do we got? We got Jonah now headed for Nineveh. Each step taking him on a collision course between his prejudice, Ninevite arrogance, and the unlimited love of God. Now, verse 3 also called Nineveh a very large city. If you look at that in the Hebrew, I found something really interesting. The Hebrew literally says it was a great city to God. Isn't that interesting? It was a great city to God. But how could that be, that it would be a great city to God? After all, uh, they didn't believe in him. They didn't know him. And they were worshiping idols. And yet, in the literal translation of the Hebrew, it says, this city is great to me. I want you to know something, friends, that... This great city is still on God's heart. God still loves the great cities of this world. I mean, for thousands of years, the rural population has outnumbered people living in the, in the urban population. But today, it is said that more people live in cities than on farms and in small towns or, or small or rural villages. We live in an increasingly urban world and unless something drastically changes, that's probably never going to change. Now, in 1903, Frank North wrote a hymn about the frantic pace of the city. Understand, this was in 1903 he wrote. He wrote the song we sang during our offering this morning, where crossed the crowded ways of life. Now, I'm gonna, I'll be the first to tell you that the melody was a little difficult, but I hope you didn't shut your brain down just because it was a little hard to sing. But I'll tell you, the words in there are absolutely amazing. Go back and read it again. Listen to this first verse one more time. Where cross the crowded ways of life, where sound the cries of race and clan, above the noise of selfish strife, we hear your voice, O son of man. See, God cares about the great cities of this world. He cares about the mega cities in this world where teeming millions of people crowd together. I mean, we could say, you know, God has a heart for Mexico City. God has a heart for Tokyo. God has a heart for Manila or Beijing or Port-au-Prince and Haiti. And if we have God's heart, we will also have a heart for the great cities of this world as well. 
So Jonah ends up in Nineveh. The text says it took three days to go through it. Now, that might mean it took three days to walk through every part of it. It could mean that it took three days to walk all the way around it. Now, scholars who found ruins and everything tell us that, that Nineveh was probably a big town surrounded by little suburbs, little, little, Nineveh, little Ninevehs, and that it probably had as many as 600,000 people living there. It was a mega city in that day. So Jonah goes in to that city of 600,000 people, and he begins to preach. And did you catch his simple message? Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was his whole message. In English, it's eight words. In Hebrew, it's only four. Now, as you can all readily attest, and Barry, who's known me longer, I have never preached an eight-word sermon in my life. (laughs) Eight words. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. i got to tell you, too, that's a pretty depressing sermon. Forty more days, and First Lutheran will be overthrown. Forty more days, and Texarkana will be overthrown. Forty more days, I walk around my sign, and Texas will be overthrown. You're not hearing any of this, God loves Nineveh. You're not hearing, oh, Nineveh for Jesus. You're not running around here and everybody, say yes, Nineveh. It's a message of impending judgment and nothing more. Now, can you imagine how it might have been received? Here comes Jonah. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The people say, you know, he's not from around here, you know. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Well, he sure does have a funny accent. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He sure smells like fish. (laughs) See, that's not the way we would win a city, is it? If we were going to put together a Nineveh for Jesus campaign, we'd hire an advance team. We'd get together a public relations person. We would put out this ad campaign. We would buy billboards. We would do some sort of a social media blitz. We would start a Facebook for Nineveh, a Facebook page. We'd get our Twitter team going. Uh, we would make some Nineveh for Jesus t-shirts. We would recruit and train all of our volunteers. Uh, we would rent a stadium. We would buy television time. We would have a bunch of home prayer meetings. We'd print up follow-up materials. We would arrange for somebody to do simultaneous translations as the main speaker spoke. We'd rehearse this gigantic choir, and we would organize Operation Jonah. And all it would take would be about, oh, three or four million dollars to get going. That's what we do today. Jonah skipped it all. He walked into Nineveh and gave his entirely negative eight-word sermon. Now, you wouldn't think he'd stand much of a chance. This is kind of an aside. Why do, why do you think, though, that he gave such a negative message? Why do you think he, he still focused on the coming judgment? I think it's because that's all he really cared about. He hoped 40 days would come and, you know, 
God would rain down hellfire and brimstone, and he'd be as happy as a clam at high tide if it happened in 40 days or less. Now, we can say whatever we want to say, but no one, no one could ever accuse Jonah of preaching cheap grace. He's a hard-nosed preacher of God's judgment who would be happy as could be if he saw everything come true, judgment, in 40 days or less. Now, I'm not an evangelist. I've preached at some evangelism, evangelism crusades in other countries, but... You know, if you're going to go out and do evangelism, this doesn't seem like a very promising way to go about it. But underlining all of this was a truth that Jonah himself did not understand. What Jonah did not understand was that Nineveh was ripe for a revival, but nobody knew it. Nobody knew it but God. God had been working behind the scenes. He'd been preparing the people. Now, I want to take you back into the text again. What happened when he preached? Back at verse 5. It doesn't say they believed Jonah. It says the Ninevites believed God. The last half of verse 5 said the king stood up, which is a sign of serious intent. It says he took off his royal robes, which is a sign of humility. It says he covered himself with sackcloth, which was a sign of mourning. And he sat in the dust, which was a sign of repentance. He then sends out this call for a time of prayer and fasting. And did you catch it? It's not just the people. Sackcloth on all the animals. No animal was eating. And he says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When I read that, I I thought to myself, when I first read that again, I thought, man, that sounds familiar to me. Who knows God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger that we will not perish. Then it struck me. It's almost as if the king had memorized Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. And if you got your Bible sometimes, go back to Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, and it says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, I don't think he knew Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, but it sure sounds like it. And what happens now is the greatest revival in history. The entire city repented. The entire city believed in God. George Whitfield never saw anything like this in the great revivals. Dwight Moody never saw anything like this. Billy Sunday never saw anything like this. Nothing like this has ever happened in the entire worldwide ministry of Billy Graham or Reinhardt Bonnke or any other great evangelist you know today like Louis Palau or whatever. I mean, think about it. A whole pagan city believed in God. Now, we look at that and we kind of doubt it because it just seems so utterly fantastic. We've never seen or heard anything like that in our lives. It's like saying, overnight, everybody in Tokyo accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Or everyone in Singapore suddenly repented. Or everyone in Shanghai became a Christian 
If we brought it a little closer to home, we might say, well, the whole city of San Francisco got right with God. Or Cleveland turned to the Lord, or Boston finally got to its knees. I mean, the greatest revival that ever happened happened because of a one-sentence sermon preached by a guy who didn't want to be there preaching, who was hoping for destruction, and who hated the people he was preaching to. Now, what are the chances of a revival happening with that combination? I'd say it'd be somewhere around zero. (laughs) Because without God, the chances are always zero. Now, why did this happen? Why did the revival take place? Well, I, I tell you, it wasn't because of Jonah. And how could this happen in the big city of Nineveh? It happened because of the two greatest words in the Bible. You know what the two greatest words are in the Bible? You ready? But God. But God. You never know what God will do. But God did. Jonah didn't want to go, but God had plans. Verse 10, when God saw they did what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Now, some of you have older translations. It's possible for you to stumble on this verse because some older translations say that God repented. And we go, well, how can God repent? Did God sin? Well, actually, a better word is the translation we use in the English Standard. If you go back and look at the original word in the original Hebrew again, the best word is God relented. That's different than repent. God always intended to show mercy to these people. He threatened judgment, which was thoroughly deserved, knowing that he would gladly pardon them if they would turn from their wicked ways. Now, let me emphasize a very important fact one more time. Nobody could have predicted this great revival in advance but God. Three days before Jonah showed up, business as usual in Nineveh. Two days before Jonah entered town, everything was hunky-dory. The day before Jonah showed up, nobody had an inkling what was about to happen. Now, when I say nobody knew... I've got to add those two great Bible words again, don't I? No one knew but God. God knew all along. He was busy working in this pagan city and preparing the hearts long before this runaway prophet ever showed up. Now, I'm going to end with a few questions and then we're done. A few questions. Question number one, how much did the Ninevites know? You know... They got an eight-word negative sermon, and they all came to know God. I mean, how much do these folks know? Well, I'll tell you, the answer is not much. But give them credit. They believed God, and they acted on what they believed. Here's the second question. How much faith does it take to be saved? Well, judging from our answer of number one, not much. Not much as long as your faith is in the right object. They didn't have faith in Jonah. They had faith in God. Now, here's a third question. Did this really happen? 
And I ask this question because there have been people for a long time who have doubted the story of Jonah and the whale and all this kind of bogus stuff like that. Did this story really happen? Did the entire city of Nineveh really come to faith? Well, historically, we know that this happened in 765 B.C. That's kind of the timing of the writing. Now, if that's true that this took place in 765, how do we account for the fact that the Assyrians attack Israel and take the northern ten tribes captive a generation later in 722 B.C.? I had somebody ask me that one time. That ah, couldn't have happened. I mean, you're only talking about, what, another 40 years in this city that all come to know God hauls God's people off into captivity? It never happened. I say, oh, yes, it did. See, this was Nineveh's moment, and the people of that generation responded to God. Even if that didn't last until the next generation, the people who responded to God's message there in this generation were changed forever. Now, I want you to think about Luke 11:32. This is the only minor prophet that Jesus ever quotes. He says in, in Luke 11:32, "The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one who is greater than Jonah is here." See, this was God's moment for Nineveh, and they responded. Now, I think we could ask a similar question today. What is the future of America? What is the future of America? How much more time does this country have in its future? You know, sometimes it's pretty easy for us to look at the uh, moral erosion around us and think somehow that maybe God's judgment is not too far away. Do you ever stop and think that maybe we are under God's judgment at this very moment in time and we, maybe we really don't realize it? But you know, this study of Jonah chapter 3 really ought to encourage you. Maybe we are not closer to a great judgment of God. Maybe we are closer than we realize to a great awakening of God even greater than ever before. Now, it's been said that the responsibility of each generation is to reach their generation for Jesus. You know, we can't look to the past and focus on what others have done for Jesus. Somebody sent me a picture the other day of the 1957 Time magazine, and on the cover of the 1957 Time magazine, lauded the Lutheran Church as being the fastest-growing, important church in America. Not anymore. Jump forward about 60 years, it ain't happening, folks. We're losing more people out of the back door to the Lutheran Church every day than ever before. So we can't look back and say, well, we are the grand and glorious church of the past. Nor can we sit here today and look into the future, thinking about what the children of today might be doing in 30 or 40 years. The only generation we, I'm talking about us right here, the only generation that we can reach right now is our own generation, this generation of people. 
And this may sound like a harsh word, but, you know, we are going to be held accountable for what we've done with the opportunities God gives us in this generation. I'm going to ask you a few kind of hard questions. Have we stopped believing that God can reach the unreachable? Have we stopped believing that God can do the impossible? Do we look around us and say, oh man, this is like Nineveh, it's hopeless. I want to remind you of something, friends, though. I don't care what you think. What I care about is what God thinks. And what God thinks and God says is, I love Nineveh. I love Nineveh. See, Jesus is the one who touches the untouchable. Jesus is the one who reaches the unreachable. Jesus is the one who saves the so-called unsavable. Jesus is the one who brings revival to Nineveh. Probably another question. He can do all that, but can he save Jonah? What's going to happen to this reluctant, runaway prophet who does not love the world that God loves? I'll come back next Sunday and we'll see. There's one more story in this amazing life of Jonah. Let's pray. Lord, send out your word. Use your people. Make this your moment. Banish our unbelief and increase our faith. Do again what you did in Jonah's day. Give us your heart for this world, especially for the great cities of this world. And may we not fail in the task of reaching our generation for Jesus. We pray it in the precious name of Jesus, who also taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.